RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 5, Episode 14, Star Trek The Next Generation, Gene Roddenberry's First Thoughts, 1986. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back, Star Trek fans, Star Trek historians. Hey, you canonistas, I say that lovingly now. And, uh, of course, all of our Trekophiles spelled with an F. Have an interesting document that I think I've looked at in times past, but it really just only recently sunk into me what we're looking at. So, as always, pull up a chair, check out our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Trek Files. Go through the entire document. We're going to be in the roots of TNG, but you know what? We're going to be in the very rootiest of TNG roots days. I think we've found Gene Roddenberry's very first thoughts on the show. So take a look. Here's a sample audio reading, as always, and then come right back with me. I'll be here with this week's guest. At the time of the original Star Trek series, Starfleet had explored 18% of our galaxy. By the time of our new series, we will have explored 34% of the galaxy. Ironically, this makes for a curious phenomenon. As you blow up a balloon, the surface area expands. In the same way, as we have explored the galaxy, our frontier has expanded as well. There is not less opportunity to explore. There is much, much more. This will remain true for as long as we continue to spread out through the cosmos. Space is not simply the final frontier. It is an eternal frontier. All right, Trekophiles. I think that last sentiment... um goes for franchises as well as <laughs> space itself. There's always something new to explore. And uh, yeah, I think we can look at this document and see even before the so-called think tank assembled, even after and, and in response to, if you didn't hear our prior episode, the would-be format that Paramount suggested that got Gene back in the game, this seems to be, it's not dated, you'll notice, but it seems to be Gene's first thoughts, his, okay, we're really going to do this. Here's what I'm going to th- here's what I'm thinking about doing. So who's been with me every step of the way as we've looked at these roots documents, these early early foundational building blocks of Star Trek the Next Generation, then our good buddy friend of the show and co-producer. <laughs> you know him from Mission Log though. John Champion. John. Hello. Isn't this Hello. just an amazing piece of paper? Several pieces uh, of paper. Yeah, yeah. The when I first read this, the thing that I thought was that there is a a certain kind of purity to this document mm-hmm. because it, it is without the 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 input or the uh, maybe pushback from anybody else. It's just Gene sitting down, pen to paper, metaphorically. He's on a word processor <laughs> and a typewriter or whatever, but just Gene sitting down, getting out his very first thoughts. And it's extremely revealing uh, the things that stayed, the things that changed, Mm -hmm. the things that were clearly in response to TOS and his experiences 20 years later. Um, It's just it's a goldmine right here in about, you know, 12, 13 pages 
um, every bit of it is fascinating. Well, yeah, it is. I mean, on the surface, the first things you notice are all you know the word, the name choices, or the or mm-hmm. the or the draft, the placeholder names, everything from his captain being named William T. English. I was madly trying to think if he'd ever used the name English <laughs> in one of his other pitches or one of his other shows. William right, T. Right. I think that's popped up uh, more than once, even. But um, yeah, well, and, and yeah. funny then that he he has his number one as also a W T. He's got him as Walter T. Riley. Right. So we really like this W T. R. combination for his uh, his first officer. It's a placeholder, obviously, but D T. Yeah. Not D C. Yeah. But D T. Fontana, <laughs> and he's what she says. This is a working name. But then he, the, the way he describes the science officer as being loyal and able to synthesize facts and being beautiful, but it's, it's her rare and special ability to process knowledge and synthesize idea, and also to pull the leader aside and tell him when he's messing up. It's like, well, I'm yeah. sorry, you, you have just patterned that off of Dorothy Fontana. <laughs> Right, it's right. Like it's a little person. on the nose. It's, it's a, a little, little on, on the, the nose, nose just to call her D.T. Fontana. Yeah, you know? yeah. Because every Star Trek fan now is is watching this and going like, oh, yeah, that's that's D.C. It's a little too inside, uh, <laughs> you know. Uh, but and then you have Jordy LaForge, George LaForge, mm-hmm. uh, which is apparently just one of those names that didn't change at all. I mean, right. it, it became Jordy, but even here he says he's called Jordy. Spelled a little differently, but right. that's that's something that right from the beginning that he's blind, um, he's black. The, these are characteristics of this person that the, the real really world state. person that he's naming. That's the homage, yeah, the yeah, namesake yeah. that we've talked about, and even had a, we've a prior episode had a letter from his mother thanking Gene yes. for naming the character. Yeah. But it's yeah, that's overall you can look at this and see what the what the touchstones were. He wanted an android named Data or Data, mm-hmm. however it wound up being pronounced. He wanted his character to be an be a handicapped character, a disabled character, with an as an homage to George LaForge, the fan. Mm-hmm. But it seems like overall, he they want the um, the quote unquote Latina security chief, you know, from the aliens inspired security chief. Um, that's here is Diabla before she's Macha before she winds up being completely recast with right. Denise Crosby into being um, Ukrainian, not you know Latina at all, and right, Tasha right. Yar. But it seems like overall the first thing that he's thinking of, aside from overall the the, and he's got his captain here being the captain that doesn't beam down. So he's mm-hmm. thinking of the years of criticisms of the show and the format, the the Kirk Spock McCoy. But overall, he's thinking that first thought about how do we make it exactly the same but completely different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and and it shows an evolution. It shows a kind of maturity in Gene to be able to look at. TOS with 20 years of hindsight and say, okay, these are the things now that make sense to change. Like mm-hmm. you were just saying, okay, you know, the, the captain is somebody who stays on board. We're going to let other people actually beam down to the planet and, uh, and put themselves into trouble, in danger if it happens. Um, but he really is spelling out Captain English here as somebody who is a diplomat, somebody who has to deal with the really big uh, uh, moral and ethical and philosophical problems and get feedback from the rest of his crew. So, you know, and even from the first few pages here, uh, he's, he's sort of making a case for this is a, 
an outline here for future mm-hmm. living. This is an outline here for who we get to be in the future, as opposed to the original pitch documents for Star Trek, where he's saying, this is a space adventure show, but we want to treat it realistically where the adventure feels like it could be ripped out of you know a newspaper today. This is right. now 20 years later. Gene's been on the college lecture circuit. He's been through the ringer uh, a few times of making Star Trek movies. Um, He's been through outlook, the guru machine once or twice. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And, and his outlook has changed. So now he gets to say, okay, let, let's find the elements that worked in Star Trek, but we're going to mature it a bit. And it, it's really, it's very clear here. By the way, well, I, uh, you, mentioned, yeah. you mentioned data. And I actually, I really love the idea that in this, something we didn't get out of the Data character in Next Gen was that they really gave him a cultural identity. Mm-hmm. So this was an interesting idea that they didn't, uh, and I can understand the many reasons to not go down that path, but it's a, a sort of a hypothetically interesting idea that you had uh, a colony of people from Asian backgrounds and he doesn't specify, he just says Asian humans, he doesn't say if they're Japanese or Chinese or Korean or whatever Um, Thai yeah, yeah, but they had then been in contact with this advanced civilization when that colony died off for whatever unspecified reason here this advanced civilization had created this android to sort of emulate the cultural history, the cultural knowledge of those colonists. So he said the data here appears Asian and has that sort of cultural historical knowledge based on that colony. Really interesting idea to to follow. I don't know if that would be something sustainable for an entire series, but if you had a character like that that you got to explore a few episodes, I, I you know, I keep mm-hmm. reading this and I go, oh, I would watch that show. <laughs> <You know? laughs> these are the, so many of these are are great ideas for these characters. It's like, yeah, of course they they could have followed that as well. He has a, he has he has the data android character pretty well sketched out here. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he he specify and again, what is so found? What's in his mind? at square one of this series before anybody else has weighed in. What's he brought with it, his initial impulses? Some of these things go away, but you can tell the pieces that stayed throughout are what's most foundational his thinking. And and he's got number one right off the bat. Um, he is uh, he's fully functional as a sexually being here, as a sexual being here. But, right, um, right. But the expression of his sexuality is as superior to ordinary human beings as poetry is to grunting. It's like... <laughs> Thank you, 80s Gene there. Yeah. Well, so that that is something that is a little problematic in this document. Um, But it's a double-edged sword, though. He does this, yeah, it's not just Gene, but it's also a very kind of dated Hollywood thing Mm -hmm. that you read these character descriptions, and especially for the women, he leads with, well, she's really beautiful. She's so gorgeous. Right. Uh, and, And then, but she's also really smart. Hey, but she's, she's not really just capable. gorgeous. Yeah, she's, yeah. You know. it, it, that's that's annoying, and it, it has become this trope, and and rightfully so that it gets pointed out over and over again. You pick up He's, a script, uh, even up until just very recently, and probably some 
to this day that'll have a character description for a man and it's just he's a guy who does this but then you look at a female character and it's like and she's really beautiful john baby he's just trying to help the casting people out here early on uh, that's all he's trying to do baby sure he is i'm sure he is he um but so here's what is interesting though is that you know take all of that with a grain of salt um he actually then, for the male characters as well, like Data, and like Number One, who uh, uh, William, well, sorry, Walter T. Raleigh here, he gets into their sexuality as well. Mm-hmm. And yes, on a certain level, it is just Gene, <laughs> 1980s Gene, just sort of throwing everything at the wall. But it also is, I, I think it's important here in the respect that. For a 1980s Star Trek, mm-hmm. he's sending a signal in this document to say we're not going to shy away from another part of the human experience, mm-hmm. which is sexuality. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're we, foreshadowing we, the scant here on the yeah yeah we I would say we got little tastes of that in Next Gen maybe maybe not to the extent that Gene wanted it but uh, it, it is curious to see how that is just front and center for so many of the characters in this uh, well in this it's breakdown. it's again we can get you know there's all the characters here. so here's what's not here the crushers are not here yeah uh, right. there's no counselor on the bridge yet although right. it's interesting that so here so the science officers call con so they have con yeah, and ops it's, it's all a part terrible. of his <laughs> <laughs> sorry, come on <laughs> well it's all a part of him i mean the, the overall thing that strikes me here is he is desperately trying to reconfigure not we're talking about names and and character types and all that but he's also trying to look at the function of the ship and the mm-hmm. bridge and what because that will translate into the storytelling right now this is 87 tv has undergone the Hill Street Blues Revolution, as in the whole the whole shakeup in TV into ensemble storytelling, right? And suddenly it was okay mm-hmm. to have eight or ten main characters and another ten recurring. And that was not part of the original series mix. And a lot of times we look back now. In fact, I I think I was thinking about that today. We're talking currently about the serial revolution, right? And the streaming yeah. revolution. Um, and what that's done to storytelling. And it was just as big a shakeup in the 80s. And Star Trek here was just after that wave. And he's exploring. Totally, you can tell he's exploring because of what he's established here as far as the dynamics of characters interacting. What the old, you know, there's obviously a ca- captain, but he's already split his captain in two. And it's, it's you know, we've talked about this in, in I did it in my companion in the 90s. But, mm-hmm. and, and we still do today. We talk about it here on the docks. But even more so, this is first thoughts at that step and he's already from the gate you know trying to separate his old Kirk captain into yes. an older more mature reflecting his own personality the captain he says he's even gray at the temples he even physically wrote that yeah. and then the younger yeah. captain of action but also just splitting up the dynamic so it's not the you know the wonderful Spock McCoy Kirk triangle here he's trying right. to find another dynamic to tell stories by and what just hit me today and again Reading this intellectually over the years, they were trying to come up with how they would approach the first contact when the captain doesn't go off the ship to lead every first, you know, first contact or right. away mission. But what's also going on here, it kind of bubbled up and then went away as a formal idea. But in the early, all these early docs, and for weeks to come, they would talk about the contact team mm-hmm. and how, okay, well, the captain won't go down, but that will be the younger first officer's. He'll be in command of the away teams, of the contact teams. And they really were trying to solidify that as a concept. 
And as you read this, it, it, it survives several drafts later. But even here at the beginning, Gene, it looks like he's thinking about this in terms of who's on the bridge, the characters whose major function is bridge characters, Con and Ops and the captain, and who the characters are that are like the legs and the brains, the mobile, yeah. right? Yeah. So he's got the security chief, but the security chief is always part of the contact team. Which right. begs the question, well, do you really let your your security chief always be the one on the... Shouldn't an underling go down? And, but he's got... Right. Some of these... Jordy is set up as the incredible sensor brain insightful person who's on the contact team. And it struck me that were they going for an upstairs down... He was thinking in terms of upstairs... Like, how do I shake up the old 60s format for Star Trek? And it yeah. looks like he's going for the bridge crew contact team, almost having them not overlap in ways, like an upstairs-downstairs. Or, dare I say it, an upper decks, lower decks mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of situation. Well, he's done something uh, smart here that you would expect in any good uh, show Bible or, or outliner description. And, and that's you kind of have to weigh out, okay, what is the character mm-hmm. function because we have to tell stories that that fit into this format consistently, but also what is the character type? Who are they humanistically? How how do they interact? And and he's got a good balance here. So anybody coming onto this, because he look he already knows what his sort of dream team is. Okay, there's Bob Jossman, there's David Gerald, there's Dorothy. There there's sort of this mm-hmm. the old guard coming back. How do you express all of this in a way that makes sense to them, that then makes sense to their new writers who are coming in? What, what are those hallmarks that right away they can say, oh, yeah, we're not going to do this the way we did 20 years ago, but here are the ideas that are really strong that stick, and here's the way we will explore these new characters. Um, there was something else that I thought was kind of fun to point out here. So there's only a couple of pages really dedicated to uh, uh, scientific <laughs> yes. minutia. So uh-huh. he, he's got this bit about uh, stardates, which I thought was fun because even his description here of how stardates work, totally not the way they went. Right. <laughs> but but that's a, he's got a funny line, though, where he says, in the original series, stardates <laughs> were determined by a complex <laughs> formula based on the distance yes. from Earth multiplied by the producer's birthday. birthday. That's hilarious. Yeah, there's a little twinkle. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But then the other thing that's really fun here is that he he goes through this long explanation without saying this is the Drake equation, basically rehashing the Drake equation. Mm-hmm. And we know that he had his Drake equation, although he fudged it a little bit in the original. Uh, he had the no Drake Google equation. available in 1964. Uh, right, yeah, he didn't have Google. What, what were we going to do? So he fudged it, but Damn it's okay. Um he describes it here in uh, you know similar ideas, mm-hmm. similar concepts, and what it comes down to is like, yeah, even if it's a, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction, we're still left with potential of millions of stories to tell and mm-hmm. millions of worlds to explore. So it's nice to see that little bit of thread connecting his very first pitch with this from Next Gen. Well, and that opening we cited at the very beginning, uh, that the mission of the ship, these are the voyages, That's that kind of stayed through. It didn't really have to because everyone knew the, the voiceover, but that stayed through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The formal, again, this is his first thoughts. There was a first, and he's writing this, and we're, we're guessing it's not dated, but we're guessing October. The would-be Paramount 
outline is sent to him, what, September 12th, September I believe? 12th, right. 1986. He yeah. says, no, 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 I'll come back, I'll do my own show, thank you, but no thank you, tosses that out <laughs> that we, we got into finding and discovered and have, have talked about several times. Yeah. And, and then mid-October is when he invites first uh, Bob Justman and David Gerald, and then Dorothy a little bit later. So it feels like these are his original thoughts. And then the first actual draft of a writer's guide comes out November 26th. They're casting the characters by December, Julian Picard, you know, and the crushers are in there, both of them, and the counselor. And you can see how some of these aspects of a character have coagulated, how they've, how they've transformed um, in and amongst themselves, the the con uh, or the ops officer becomes the android. He's given the role, mm-hmm. so it's like at some point, all these these duties that were specified for someone thought, well, now how are we going to do this? We're having bridge scenes of drama. Do you really want the contact people who aren't on the planet yet not in the action? So the security chief becomes the weapons officer, right? And the um, what was it? The the ops science officer doesn't have the science duties those kind of go there isn't a science officer really but they kind of go to data the android is ops but the ability to take the captain aside and chew him out goes to the counselor and that's you know which isn't even so there's a lot of you know pull these elements out back and forth but that second paragraph at the top is one that did not go through other it's almost like that was part of a pitch more than it is to the writer it is to the writers But it is, it does get you back to, if there were any doubt, what Star Trek is about. I mean, you, you pointed to it a minute ago, but the mission of the series, he actually says, which doesn't survive in any other drafts of a writer's guide, to portray life as it could be lived, you know, uh, on a daring adventure to demonstrate that the way things are is not necessarily the way things should be. It's starting to sound Vulcan. <laughs> to shift the viewer's perceptions of what is possible in the universe, to inspire, to illuminate, and above all, to do it entertainingly. Well, that is the mission statement of Star Trek from the beginning. I don't know in any other document. We've talked about how in the pitch from 64, that wasn't spelled out. It was all between the lines. And this is like one of the rare times in, a, in an industry document, it feels like he's actually spelled that out. In case you didn't, right. in case right. you hadn't seen the memo or in case you never watched the show. Um, it's Anyway. Yeah, altogether, yeah. this is, you know, we've got the surface treatments here, um, the character in, the character elements, the threads. But it's really fascinating to see those, what, what was there at the beginning and what stuck. So to see those character bits and also to see, you know, uh, uh, Gene feeling like he has still has the need to jump in and explain the ways of the universe there. So anyway, but thank you, John. I knew you would uh, appreciate seeing this earlier, 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 earlier look at... Uh, yeah, it's super cool. I mean, it's just his thoughts right there, unfiltered. I, I love whenever we get a chance to see something like that. Right. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer is Rod Roddenberry. Now, all of our documents and your chance to comment, as usual, are available at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. For more great and growing number of podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. Yes, that's me. At LarryNemichek.com. Trek well, everybody. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.